Good morning. Is that working? Oh no, you can hear me. It is an inestimable privilege to be here and to bring God's word to you this morning. It may be very common outside this church body, but now I want to declare to this church body how much I love your pastor. He is a sweet, dear man and a dear friend over many, many years, and I'm grateful that he allows me to call him his friend. This is a great church, and you are blessed to be here, and it was a wonderful joy to be with the young people on Friday and Saturday. I am so grateful that the Lord is working in your midst as he is, and that you continue to be a light set on the hill glowing for the world to see. I also have the privilege this morning to open God's Word to you, and if you would, if you have already closed your Bible, please open it back up to Psalm 39, Psalm 39. I was asked to consider bringing this message to you this morning because in the decade of my 50s, both a couple of years prior And now on the other end of that spectrum of those days of my life, I have had the strange providence of seeing a number of deaths in my family, my immediate family. From 2009 now to 2023, on average about once every two years, I've seen the terrible deaths of seven of these family members. It started off with my stepfather. I didn't live with him in the home. He and my mother were married uh, a little bit after that, so I was already out of the home. But he was a, a, a fine man in many ways, My mother married him as the fourth husband in her life. She was a restless wanderer. She didn't know the Lord. She, in fact, was a Jehovah's Witness. And she had married at 16, divorced, had a child, and that child went with the father and his parents to be raised. She went in the military and married a second time and had another child and another divorce and that child went to his father and their people and and then she married my father and they weren't married too long. My sister and I were the product of that relationship and they were divorced when I was four years of age. So you can tell the volatility and the upheaval in a family like that. And it was then that we moved back to stay with her mother and father, my 
grandfather and mother in a little town outside of Osceola, Arkansas. And she continued to be restless and moved us all around the state and never sort of in one place that long at all. And then she met this fourth man and they married and in 2009 after I think about 22 years of marriage and by the way when they were wanting to be married I was already in the ministry and they asked me if I would perform the wedding ceremony which is quite strange but because I thought it was better for them not to live together but to be married, though not believers, I did perform that wedding ceremony. And 22 years later, he's now very aged and he died. He was a kind fatherly figure as such, and but it really impacted me because I really didn't grow up with a father and didn't really have a father figure in my life, and he was, was kind to me. And then, not too long after that, my own mother was being treated in a hospital there in the greater Little Rock area for a, for a blood clot behind her right knee. And apparently at some point in the middle of the night, it probably traveled to her heart and she had a massive heart attack and died. She didn't know the Lord. And I was grieved by that and impacted by that because I had for so many years pled with her to repent and believe in the gospel. And I thought at least at that point there would be some respite of those deaths and all the impact that they were having in my thoughts and my emotions. But it wasn't to be because my wife and I, as Brett said, have the eight children and my oldest son, second child, and his wife were having a second child. They had a son and they were delivering a second son and he was a little bit premature but doing very, very well. He was in the NICU unit of the hospital there in Thousand Oaks, California. And about four days in, they decided they wanted to get his weight up a little bit so he could continue to get stronger. And so they placed a pick line in his little body so that he could get those, those nutrients. And unbeknownst to everyone, including the medical professionals who were caring for him, that pick line would, was not properly sterilized. And so they actually bacterialized his body. And he died on day six. It was a blow. It was a huge blow. And I think it was tough, particularly on my wife, because just some months prior to that, I was preaching in Baltimore, Maryland for a dear friend and I received one of those calls that you and I would never want to receive. I'd been married to Beth for over 30 years and 
she was calling to say, I was not feeling well at all this morning. And I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what. And so they took me to that same hospital there in Thousand Oaks and discovered that I had a large tumor mass on the left lobe of my lung. She'd never smoked a day in her life. It was non-smoker lung cancer, and they said, we're so sorry, this is obviously metastasized to your brain. We can see seven tumors there. And so I was taken to Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C. and flew an overnight flight and got to her hospital room and hugged and cried and prayed and hugged and cried and prayed. And of course, I would assume you would have been doing the same thing I did. Lord, no! Please! Do something. Help us. And through the process of surgeries and radiation and chemotherapy, the Lord gave us two years and four months together. And I cherished every second. I mean, there was no question about her eternity. She was so godly. I never saw her, even in the raising of those eight children, ever take a nap. She was so active. She was so full of life. Our kids and I cherished her. But it seemed as though the Lord was going to take her, and he did right as COVID was hitting. I took her to the hospital on March 15th of 2020 and two weeks later, she died. I'll never forget it. March 30th, 3.30 in 2020 at 4.40 p.m. But I know where she is. She's alive. And though her body lays in a grave, she will see a resurrection of that body. No cancer. No tears. No sorrow. And she's with the Lord Jesus Christ right now. And I rejoice in that. And it appeared as though, though she was the love of my life, perhaps those deaths in my family were over for a while. My stepfather, my mother, my grandson, my wife, but it was not to be. Less than three months later, I received a call from my niece, my sister's daughter, saying, have you talked with my mom lately? And I said, well, I just did a resurrection message, and I said some things about Beth, and I wanted her to hear it, and so I sent her the message, but I haven't received a response from her. She said, that's because she's in hospice and about to die. And I said, what? What are, you, what are you talking about? What do you mean? She said, well, she didn't want to tell anybody because everyone would know that she has drank and smoked herself to death. And she's barely alive. 
I said, I'm, I'm coming right now. She's not a believer and I, I knew I needed to fly to Dallas, Texas and stand by that bedside and as long as I could until she died, just pleading with her to repent and believe in the gospel. And all she wanted was just another smoke. And one week of a vigil there in the hospital, she died. I buried her on what would have been her 61st birthday. By that time, my friends, I was assuming that that has to be it. Uncle. Tilt. Overload. But it was not to be. God's providence... Shortly after that, I received a call about my favorite aunt, one of my uncle's wife, and she was a sweetheart. She took care of me in that volatility of my relationship with my mother. She was more of a mother to me than my mother was a mother to me, to be honest. And I was asked, can you come and do the funeral and bury her right next to your sister in a funeral home in Blyville, Arkansas? So I got on another plane and buried someone that I loved dearly. Now at this point, you all are saying what I said a hundred times. Lord, are you sure you know what you're doing? I, I, I know you are, but these people are precious to me and it's in like rapid fire succession. And just in 2021, I was at a big conference and received a call about my precious mother-in-law, godly person, loves the Lord. She was having aortic valve replacement surgery in a hospital in Little Rock, and the surgery was very successful. And they were removing a, a tube from her leg that was for draining purposes, and Apparently one of the arteries in that leg burst and she bled out on the table. And so we had to take a, yet another trip to Arkansas to do her memorial service. And by this time, I'm looking all over the Word of God for solace, for care, for encouragement, and for teaching, teaching my own soul and teaching my children my grandchildren and others. And so I preached a sermon from Psalm 39. And if you're there, I think it would be good for us with that introduction to find out what's the Lord's perspective on the fragility of life. Life is fragile. Life is short. And life must be understood the way God understands it. And this is precisely why Psalm 39 is in our Bibles. There are four very, very short principles that I want to teach you this morning about the fragility of life, that life is a vapor. If you wanted a sermon title, it would be something like this, Life is a Vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. We ought to maximize this short life that the Lord has given us because none of us know. We just had our courageous churchman 
conference, as Pastor Brett said, and in the intervening days, one of those young men who's actually a student at the Expositor's Seminary, who was there at that conference, was laying in an inflated mattress in a home there of one of our members, and he started having a seizure. Never, never had a seizure in his life. They rushed him to Jupiter Medical Center, and they found out that he has a deep tumor embedded in his brain. It's going to be a very challenging situation. I prayed with him at the hospital, and he's seeing the Lord's goodness, though it's going to be a hard road ahead. And at that same Courageous Churchman conference, young pastor from Bozeman, Montana, on the staff of a wonderful church, Grace Bible Church there. He's a staff person. And Danny went back to the Courageous Church, from the Courageous Churchman Conference, encouraged, edified, built up. He's got a beautiful wife, four children, I think something like eight, six, four, and two. And he dropped dead a couple of days ago. Just a terrible situation. Those are just things in my little world, my little circle. And that just accentuates all the more the challenge of the fact that life is short. And because life is short, we need perspective. And here is that perspective. If you're taking notes, the very first and easy point of these four is this, be careful. Be careful. Be careful about what, David? This is a psalm of David. To the choir master, to Jedithan, a musician of sorts, maybe even a leader of music, psalm of David. And in the first three verses... David says, I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. What does he mean by that? What's he trying to drive toward in verse 1? Well, I think he's telling all of us that in the presence of unbelievers, we need to be careful about how we represent our God to them. Now that doesn't mean that, as I did a moment ago, when you and I are beset with tragedy and loss, particularly loss and death, I admitted to you very clearly that when I was hit with that news about the love of my life, over 30 plus years of marriage and eight children and now even 15 grandchildren, the idea is you and I might be tempted to think that we should live a long life, we should be blessed abundantly, we should have very few challenges and certainly not rapid fire staccato-like deaths every two years and certainly not your own spouse 
And if we're not careful, we might also believe that God could be seen either by us or the way we represent him to others as entirely unfair. Arbitrary. What's he doing? What's the point? Are you trying to punish me? Are you insinuating that I need to get my act together? Or are you just trying to to teach me something for which I'm overwhelmed? I don't understand. I don't even agree. And if you and I were to think those thoughts and say those words, especially in the presence of unbelievers, how would they assume we believe in and affirm and extol the character of God? Sounds like with that kind of attitude and expressions, I may not believe God at all. Or if I do, I believe he is arbitrary. I believe he is capricious. And I think what David is doing here in verse 1 is saying, life is a, a vapor, life is fragile, life is short. But you and I have to be careful, especially when we're in the presence of unbelievers, not to misrepresent who God really is. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he's almighty. Yes, he is a consuming fire. But he is also, I can assure you, even with someone who's lost these seven persons so quickly, he is kind, he is loving, he is gracious. He's all of that and more. And when I'm in the presence of unbelievers, I need to be really careful how I represent him to others. That's what I think David is saying here. I'm going to guard my ways. If I need to, I'm going to muzzle my mouth. If the wicked are in my presence, I don't want to misrepresent my heavenly father. There are things that you and I will not understand until eternity future. There may be things, things that you and I assume God might have, should have, could have done differently, but we don't have the full picture. We're not God. And if we believe in his character of righteousness and holiness, but love and grace and mercy, we are called upon in this psalm to represent him as he really is, not a tired or angry God who is actually not that at all, but in our emotions, we may assume sometimes he is. Now that doesn't mean that you and I can't say in those moments, right in the mix of the very throes of death, even when that loved one is taking their very last breath on this earth, we don't stand stoically and say, the will of the Lord be done, as though we've been created without emotions. But we have to be careful, especially in unbelievers' presence, 
that we represent God regardless of what we're going through in such a way that honors him and that we can extol him for the God that he is. Now having said that, and having encouraged us to be careful about how we represent our God to unbelievers, that doesn't mean that all of our emotions and all of the issues of life just vanish. That they, they have still died. Whatever trial or test or challenge that you and I are facing, it might not be anything in your life of what I've experienced in mine, but whatever those challenges are, whatever those, those really, really heart-stopping emotions there are, that doesn't mean that we can't go to him and express our heart to him. But when we're in the presence of unbelievers, we are bound and determined by the word of the living God to be careful what we say and to be careful how we represent him. But that doesn't always mean that you and I are sad to no end one day and happy clappy the next. That's why I think he says what he says in verses 2 and 3. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart, verse 3, became hot within me as I mused the fire burned then I spoke with my tongue. See, that means something. I'm so glad that these psalms are where they are and they speak to us where we are because they're real and raw. David's such a realist. He's saying, I want to represent you, God, in the right way with the right attributes because you are that pristine, holy God who loves and is gracious and I do not want to misrepresent you to the world and so I will be very careful with my words but I also, on the backside of those things, maybe in the night watches, I can still cry out to you and say, my heart still burns within me and I tell you, in the intervening three years of Beth's death, I've had many nights, many nights in the night watches on that bed, crying my eyes out, saying, Lord, be merciful to me. Help me. Help my thoughts. Teach me. Love me. Care for me. She's gone. All of these people I love and cherish, they're gone. And I know where they are, and I know the theology, and I'm grateful for those who are in heaven and worshiping you. But, but I'm here. My, my heart is hot within me. Help me. Take up my cause. Minister to my heart. Give me grace to make it through. That's so honest, isn't it? That's exactly what our Lord wants us to do. Not everything goes away. Not everything just vanishes. And sometimes we carry these burdens for years, perhaps even decades. But for all the trials and tests, God promises, 1 Peter 5, 7, 
casting your cares upon me because I care for you. Keep, keep knocking on that door. Keep, keep asking the Lord for grace. Keep going to his lap and crawling up into his arms and say, Lord, I need you right now. I can't do this without you. And that's how careful David is. Secondly, not just being careful, but being clear. Be clear. Be clear about what, Lance? Well, be clear about the fragility of life. That, that life is fragile. And I suspect, especially coming out of a phenomenal youth retreat with all, these, all of these 43 young people, that we are all probably susceptible to the temptation that especially at a young age like this, that we would say something like this in our minds and you said it when you were that age and they're saying it now. I've got my whole life in front of me. This is, this is really great. I've got a long life to live. And I want to do this and I want to go here and I want to experience that. And David, it's as though he's saying something like this, yes, but... Yes, but. Keep always and forever in your mind, whether you're young or old, verses 4, 5, and 6 of Psalm 39. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. That's the right perspective. Yes, you have to live life. Yes, whether you're old or young. Life is about the living. We're not being called upon to mope around. We're not being called upon to be gloom and doom because eternity awaits. But he is saying this. Just keep clear in your perspective about how fleeting life is. How fleeting is life? How transient am I? Verse 5, behold, you have made my days a few hand breadths. Now that's a very interesting phrase and concept, hand breadth. You know what it means? The breadth of a hand. Pretty easy. Everybody take your hand and put it up in the air. Kind of spread out those fingers. Now, in a sense, in your mind, because I don't think anybody brought a ruler with them, Take that thumb and pinky and do a little ruler, do a little measure, and probably, like my hand, four inches, five, maybe from some of you big boys, six. Okay, this is what David is saying. Your life is about four inches long, maybe six. That's not long, especially in light of eternity. But, but even in the short lives that all of us get, including a six-day-old baby, our life is so fleeting. 
What are you doing to maximize the short life you've been given? Don't take shortcuts. Don't be lazy. Get busy. Think about how short life is. No wonder he says, my lifetime is as nothing before you. Because now he's comparing his own short, fragile life with the eternality of the living God who never dies. And then he says in verse 6, surely a man goes about as a shadow or a phantom. And then notice, right between verses 5 and 6, that word selah. You ever been reading in the Psalms and you come across that word selah and you say, what does that mean? I'm, I'm here for you. Here's what it means. I have no idea. No, no, nobody, nobody really knows, but it could be something like this. It could be a musical term, because remember this is a song. It's a psalm, but it's a song. And Selah might mean something like this, interlude. The words will stop now, but the music continues. So when Selah is there, it might mean this. As the Israelites were singing Psalm 39, because it was a psalm to be sung, right? It's a national song. And so when they were singing it, when Selah is listed, that means go into instrumental mode. Don't think about anything except the words you just sang. Think about them. Ponder them. The music is playing, yes, in the background. But don't forget the words. Remember what you're singing about. Ponder them. Meditate on them. Cogitate on them. Marinate in them. And in this case, you might think, well, this is a bummer of a song, how fragile life is. Well, we're just a handbreadth. That's not encouraging. I want happy peppy songs. I want gloom and doom psalms. No, no. Here's the difference. Sometimes life is incredibly fun. I love jokes. I love to laugh. I refuse to be gloom and doom. People have called me Pastor Happy Cheeks. One of the young people in Little Rock called me that. I love the moniker. I love it. Because even with all death and disease, I want to sing, but I also want to meditate, Selah, that life is short. Life is passing. It's moving away. It's going. It's It's a shadow, it's a phantom. Verse 6, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Who? Who's they? Mankind. Mankind. We're all in turmoil because we live in a world full of sin. And it can be so bad that the end of verse 6 says, man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. In other words, That might be a veiled way of saying something like this. If you've got a lot of money, you better not trust in it. You better not assume that the money that God, who's the owner of all cash, 
has given you that you're truly the owner of it and you forget him because you're so successful, mankind better be careful because if you heap up wealth, you can't take it with you. If you work all your life amassing all the cash, who is there to receive it? Oh, my kids. My grandkids. That's why I work so hard. Fine. Nothing wrong with that. But don't put your trust in it. Do you remember the, the man in Luke 12, the gospel? He was sort of musing on his wealth. And he was saying, you know, I've got so much produce. I've got so much stuff in my barns. Here's what I'll do. I'll tear down those barns because of all the stuff I can't even fit into those barns. I'll tear them down. I'll build bigger barns and I'll put all that I possess in the barns and then I will sit back and say, eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus says that God says to you, at that very time at night, you fool! Tonight, your soul is required of you. That means he's going to die that night. And then those epic words, now who will own what you possess? Can't take it with you. That's the old hackneyed question. You haven't seen a hearse carrying a U-Haul, have you? Can't, you can't take it with you? Yes, there's, there's prudence in the idea of helping those who will be behind you, sure. But with that kind of attitude, that's a guy who doesn't love God, who wants to build and amass something for his own glory. He doesn't think about the glory of God, and God is actually telling him, tonight your soul is required of you, and you haven't thought about me at all. Now who's going to own what you've amassed? That's, that's what is going on in verse 6. You know, that's something where a selah is really important. The music's playing in the background and I'm hearing those words in my mind and I say, I better think rightly about God and money. So I gotta be clear about that. I gotta be clear about the fragility of life and how challenging life is and I better put not my trust in my riches but I better put my trust in my God. Thirdly, not only be careful and be clear, but be contrite. Be contrite. What do you mean contrite? Well, it's a C, and I want to be with all C's in this alliteration. Contrition. Contrition. Be contrite. What do you mean? Verses 8 to 11. Deliver me, or excuse me, verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Here's what David is doing in this psalm. Here's, here's how to sing this song. Look, I've just said to my own soul, I've got to be clear about the fragility of life, and now I've got to come to a place where I'm willing to stand before God and say, tell me who I am really. Who, who am I? I'm willing to repent I'm willing to grow, I'm, I'm willing to acknowledge 
how short I fall in this life. Look, life is too short for me to continue to think that I've got everything under control. I don't. Anything could happen. Death, disease, destruction. I want to be open to the sin of my heart that you can continue to clean me of. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. You know what he's doing? He's preparing for eternity. Lord, clean the cup. Help me with my life. Show me my shortcomings, my transgressions, my faults, my failures. And he says, for sure, verse 8, don't make me the scorn of the fool. The fool is the unbeliever. Don't, don't ever make me think that I'm anything other than a follower of Yahweh and that I want his grace in my life and that when he takes me to the spiritual woodshed and shows me my transgressions, I'm willing to be contrite and I'm willing to listen. Now look, David had a lot of sins and a lot of problems, but he was also that penitential writer of Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. You should read them at your leisure. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, that's why they call them penitential psalms. Penitent, a, a, a penitential sinner, a, a person who wants to repent, a person who wants to be penitent. He, he, he looks at his life and he says, Lord, I gotta be open now I've got to be open to the transgressions I've committed. I'm probably knowing what some of them are. It's pretty easy to tell, but I'm also probably blind to a whole parcel of others, and I need you to help me. Now, when's the last time you prayed a prayer like that? Verse 9, I'm mute. There he goes back to being mute. But it's not because he's in the presence of unbelievers. He says this, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Done what? I think what he's talking about here is divine chastisement. Look at verse 10. Remove your stroke from me. Your loving, fatherly hand of discipline when I need it. Isn't that what the book of Hebrews says there? Verse 12, or excuse me, chapter 12. Hebrews 12. When I need encouragement, the Lord gives it to me. When I need chastisement because I veered off the path, the Lord lovingly treats me as a son who receives the rod, the rod of reproof. And so David's saying, my transgressions, whatever they are, I don't know what they are. It's been flattened out, this psalm. We don't know which of David's sins. We don't know what degree, what purposes, what they are, but we know this, the Lord is taking him to the spiritual woodshed because he says this, remove your stroke from me, I am spent by the hostility of your hand when you discipline a man, verse 11 with rebukes for sin you consume him like a moth what is dear you consume like a moth what is dear to him surely all mankind is a mere breath and he goes right back to that, life is too short to act proud and arrogant like you are not a sinner and like you don't have big problems and like oh yeah well I've got some problems but I have so many virtues that my virtues outweigh my problems and therefore I'm a pretty swell guy people ought to get to know me no if 
truth be told, in the deep recesses of the heart, we need a Selah moment and say, Lord, if you've got to take me to the woodshed, if I've got transgressions in my life, if I need to be disciplined by your hand, it's going to be a loving discipline. It's going to be a sweet discipline, though it's hard and it's laborious and I'm being given the rod of reproof. It's hurting so good because I'm changing. I'm contrite. I'm repentant. I'm, I'm learning. And I'm so thankful to be contrite in your presence, even as I know I'm a man who is but a mere breath. And you know, he likens our hand, the hand breath, the breadth of a hand, and now he says a mere breath, in light of who God is, in light of his eternality, in light of how long glory, the future is, you and I are one breath by comparison. I'm a mere breath. Here's the extent of our life if you measured it this way. Ready? One exhale. <sighs> We're done. That's it. That's, that's what he's saying. I've got to be careful and clear and contrite. And lastly, be consistent. Be consistent. This is, this is the payoff, my friends. This is, this is the, the glorious comfort of God. Look at verses 12 and 13. Hear my prayer, O Lord. No wonder David is praying. He's just been spiritually beaten up. He's had some transgression and sin, whatever it is. The Lord has taken him to the spiritual woodshed. He's learned. He's grown. He's contrite. And he says, now I've got to come back to you and I've got to pray and I cry out. Notice what it says in verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Crying. And there have been not a few nights where I've laid alone in that bed and said, through my tears, literal tears, teach me to know you even through the death of these precious people. Teach me the lessons I'm supposed to learn. Take the discipline in my life. Take the rebukes for sin and teach me. I'm open and, and when there are times when I'm not open because I'm stubborn and sinful and wicked, though saved that I am, I've got to consistently pray to you and here's what I'm asking. Hold not your silence, or the ESV says here, hold not your peace at my tears. You know, when you go through what you've gone through, and now you've heard what I've gone through of late, I'm crying out to God for peace, tranquility, hope, solace, joy, and God has been sweet to give it to me. I stand as a testament that God has not withheld his peace from my tears. He comes to me in the night watches with his sovereign, loving hand and he ministers to me there. That's what David's praying. 
And he goes right back to that idea, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like my father's. It's like that old song, this world is not my home, I'm just uh, passing through. I'm a sojourner, like my father's. Life is short. It's like a vapor. And he closes in verse 13. Look away from me. Now if you're not careful, you're going to read that last line and go, wait, 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 wait. (laughs) Look away from me? No, 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 no. No, David, you got that wrong. Look to me. Don't look away from me. Look to me. Look to my needs. Comfort me. No, here's what he's saying. Look away from me from your disciplining hand. In other words, I learned the lesson. I learned the lesson. So, if you would be so kind, Heavenly Father, if you would remove the strokes, the discipline of your hand to teach me the lesson, I would be so grateful so that I may smile again, that I may see your smile. You've been looking my way, but with a frown because you've been disciplining me because of my transgressions. Now, I believe I've learned the lesson. I'm going to confess to you and others what I've done, what I should not be doing. I've learned it. I'm growing through the seasons of adversity. And now, I'm asking you to look away from the discipline side of your heavenly Father. And I'm asking you now to give me a smile. You know, that's so interesting the way that happens. I had these eight kids as we close, and now they've got children, and one of them came to me recently, and here's what he said. So interesting. He said, Dad, you know all those, those years that you had to discipline me and raise me up? I said, yeah. He said, well, now that I have my sons, I get it. I, I get it. I said, you don't have to say anything more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He's actually acknowledging, I get it. And what he's saying is, and what everybody says is, yeah, we're going to go through the hardest times, but when we go through them and we learn the lesson, so that when the disciplining hand of our Heavenly Father goes away, He comes back with a smile. And I need that smile. Do you need that smile this morning? Boy, I do. Selah. God is good. And God does good. Psalm 119.68a. And I'm basking in his goodness as I stand before you this morning. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, this is a time, this is an opportunity to take, partake of the Lord's Supper and meditate on these words. Thank you that We're being taught to be careful and clear and contrite and consistent. You've taught us this morning and we are grateful. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.